0: Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host Grant Pemberton and on today's episode we are in part six of our conversation on uh, new reformation, what that means, what that looks like. So we encourage you to go back and look and listen to all of the uh, prior ones that we've been doing over the last few months uh, leading up to this point saying that the America, the world needs a new reformation. And uh, on today's episode, we're going to be talking about uh, the gospel of personal freedom, and so I'm excited to get into what that means. Ken, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're on the road. Uh, I never know what your background is going to look like because it could be a hotel or someone's bedroom or you know your your house. So thanks for joining us. I think you're in Atlanta this week Uh, for
1: a conference, right? You've got a conference. Yeah, I'm um, I'm. This is part two of a deliverance event that we started. I don't remember what month it was, but it was early this year.
0: Yeah. Well, it's good. It's good to see you back out on the road, uh,
1: after, uh, last year of, uh, canceled appointments. and all I that. have to say though, you know, I, I'm not loving what's happening in the aviation industry. It, it's, it's really frustrating dealing with the airports, the crowds, um, Infrastructure that has aged more than a year in a year, um, you know, all of the policies and procedures that are in place. I, I I'm just as they say, I'm kind of over it, and so I travel because it's part of what I do, and I kind of need to. But I wouldn't, I would actually would not mind being home for three months if I could find a way to make that happen. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I flew, I flew last week, and a couple airports were really nice. A couple airports were really terrible, and uh, it depends on what state you're in and, and honestly, like, you know, who's, who's the governor. And uh, in, a, in one state we were in, uh, they yelled at everyone the entire time about putting your mask, you know, over your nose and stuff like that. And so I actually had the thought, I don't know how Ken does this as much as he does, because I, I can't wait to
1: get back to Tennessee and, uh, in the land of the free. Yeah, this morning when I was checking in at LAX, um, you know, I have TSA pre-check and I have clear and I mean I've got everything that will expedite anything. But I often am carrying a lot of electronics, this laptop that I'm using to do this podcast, the iPod, excuse me, the iPad that's sitting right there that's it got my notes and I've got another one I use as a cash register and I've got a Kindle as well. And so I've got all these electronics in my bag, and let's not forget I've got wires and charging cables, and you know all right. that. stuff. So in theory, if you're if you've got pre-check, you don't need to take anything out. You just lay it on the bat on the belt and send it through. And in most airports in the country, that's true. I, I will say, in most airports, that's right. But you know, at any point they can do secondary inspection if they see anything that is concerning or just confusing. Often they don't know what they're looking at or whatever. So because I've got all this stuff, I've learned what tends to be problematic. So this morning I get to LAX and LAX is the worst airport in the country for this stuff. Hands down, no qualifiers, it is the worst. So I'm checking, you know, I'm, I'm right there at the thing and I, you know, I put my roller board through, no issues there, just drop it on and off it goes. And uh, you know, I take my phone and other stuff out of my pockets, put it in the tray. Off it goes. No issues there. But now I'm taking my computer and my iPad out of my laptop bag, and the TSA person goes, "You're pre-check. You don't need to take that out." I said, "Yes, I do." No, you don't. I said, "Yes, I do." He says, "You're pre-check. You're holding up the line." I said, "If I don't take this out, you're going to pull me out for secondary." I'm taking it out. He goes, you don't need to take it out. And I said, I do. And it's because of you. And just then the, the supervisor walks up, he goes, is there a problem here? I said, no, there's no problem at all. And he goes, okay, well, this sounded like there might be one. I said, no, there's no problem. So everything went through that didn't pull anything out. I put my stuff back together and moved on. But it just like yeah well the reason it sounded like there was about to be an issue is because they're trying to make me leave everything in my bag and i don't want to leave everything in my bag because if i do they're going to tear my bag apart and then i got to put everything back together so if it's going to get torn apart i want to be the one to do it and i'm going to do it on the front end not the back end of the security scanner
0: you know it's just it's one of those it's like we talked about last week it's our process of sanctification ken yeah that's that's right yeah yeah, I've been with you where I thought we we're going to get security called on us because yeah. of, you know, all of that sort of thing. So I, I understand what that scene probably looked like. So yeah uh, glad glad you made it to Atlanta safe.
1: Well, t- to tell tell us no about, what are,
0: you know, handcuffs, right? So so what are we talking about? We're talking about the gospel of personal freedom and how that intersects with this idea of uh, a new reformation. What,
1: is that, what does that mean? First of all, define gospel of personal freedom. What, what are we well, talking about? So when Jesus stands up in the synagogue to do his you know, his very f- first sermon. And, and I, I imagine as I think about him, this is probably Jesus's signature talk. It's the one that he does over and over as he travels through all the towns and villages, preaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He stands up uh, and they hand him the role of the prophet Isaiah. And he says, the spirit of the Lord God or the sovereign Lord, if you read the NIV, is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And then uh, also in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, it also says, and also to proclaim the recovery of sight to the blind, Uh, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Or we could say a garland. If you want to use that word, some of the translations use that Um, the oil of gladness instead of mourning and the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit or the King James says, the spirit of heaviness that they might be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the lord that he might be glorified and you know when we read that we should immediately think of uh, jesus in nazareth which reads this way and he came to nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom he went to the synagogue on the sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet isaiah was given to him he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began saying to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus is reading Isaiah 61 in this sermon that he preached in his hometown of Nazareth. And a lot of times, I'll just, this, is, this is not directly in the center of what we're talking about, but it's, it, we're here, we might as well mention it just as a teachable moment. Um, there are three towns that really are important with respect to Jesus. And a lot of times people get them confused. Uh, so the first one is Bethlehem. This is the town where he was born. And that's because of the census that Caesar Augustus called for, where everyone had to go to their own hometown in order to be enrolled for taxation. And this is why Joseph goes to Bethlehem because he's of the lineage of David and Bethlehem is David's town. Not too long after that, we don't know exactly when, uh, uh, Joseph has to flee to Egypt because Herod is trying to kill the babies. And then ultimately he returns and raises Jesus in Nazareth and sometime later in his adulthood, and we, again, we don't know exactly when it is, Jesus would have been bar mitzvah at age 12, but he might have waited a little bit beyond that because even at age 12, you're still, you know, a relatively young man. But uh, sometime after that, with the date uncertain, he, Jesus relocates and no longer is living in Nazareth. He's now living in Capernaum, which is by the Sea of Galilee or the sea of Tiberius as it is called by the romans Tiberius being a roman emperor so we need to think about bethlehem nazareth and capernaum so jesus goes to nazareth where he had been brought up and he and he does this inaugural sermon based on isaiah 61 um, later on, we we know that he preached in the Capernaum synagogue. And by the way, that synagogue, at least its foundations, are still there today. You can go into the building. It was remodeled in the fourth century, uh, so the, it, it's it's kind of like when you remodel a house, you might tear it down to the studs, and so it's still the same house, but it's not really the same house. Right. Um, so that that synagogue in Capernaum is is the very place. And when you walk in there, you know you know you are walking on the very ground that Jesus walked on there's no question about it Mm -hmm. but um, it's been remodeled and so there's there's some like newer marble and you know limestone and whatnot that they were using Um, so those stones wouldn't be the stones where his feet touch they but it would be right underneath that Mm -hmm. so anyway but again that's kind of off topic it's just a historical point of interest Mm -hmm. so Jesus is proclaiming that the spirit of the Lord is on him And he says the purpose of the spirit of the Lord being on him is in order that he would be anointed specifically to proclaim good news to the poor. So he has a a word of hope for the poor. Um, He is also coming to proclaim liberty to captives. And this might be the most literal sense of captive. I mean, we could possibly be talking about political prisoners, because after all, Rome was a very oppressive empire. Um, but it may not just be that kind of captive it may be somebody who's in captivity to their own lusts it could be somebody who's captive to demonic powers it could be somebody who's captive to uh, various memories and things that they they can't get free of could be a mental illness problem there's a lot of things this might mean i mean the word captive is fairly clear in the greek but but i'm thinking a little more expansively here and he goes on, and again, he's, he's still reading out of Isaiah, where it talks about recovery of sight to the blind. Now, that comes out of the Greek version of the uh, Old Testament. In the Hebrew version, the Masoretic text, that language isn't included, but when the, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek um, because of the tradition they were using and the manuscripts that they had, uh, this this did end up talking about recovering of sight to the blind, which is quite interesting because in Isaiah chapter 35, which is not the passage we read, Isaiah chapter 35, it specifically says that one of the hallmarks of the messianic kingdom would be that the blind would see.
0: Mm.
1: It even goes on and talks about the lame walking. And this is really why the, the ministry to the blind and the cripples uh, and the deaf as well, those three is so significant in the ministry of Jesus. It's not just that that has a big wow factor to it, which it does when you ever see a blind person receive their sight or a crippled walk or a deaf person receive their hearing. There's like a whoa, wait a minute, hold on. That instantly hits you. But but it's it's even more than that. It's fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah who had prophesied this. Mm. And so he talks about the recovery of sight, and then it says to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, I think there's really no other way to interpret this this piece of the verse. I think there's really no other way um, to understand this than when we say the word oppressed, we mean those who are oppressed by demons. And so, you know, in in many church traditions, we we don't really like the word possessed very much but we do talk about demonic oppression Correct. sometimes you'll hear people change the it rhymes in english anyway they'll change oppression to possession but that's the concept we're driving after so we've got those who have all kinds of mental and emotional issues we've got those who have physical issues and we've got those who have demonic problems these are the three kind of major tiers of the messianic ministry of jesus and that's what he declares. And, and if we go back to Isaiah 61, it does talk about proclaiming liberty to the captives, but again, captive in which way, and then the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Well, you know, being in, being under demonic influence is its own form of being in bondage or being bound. And so it is most literally to be taken as you know, those who are in prisons, but it has a wider understanding of it of those who may be in demonic prisons right now this is also itself a fulfillment of something else isaiah had said now you know isaiah is the prophet that jesus loves to quote more than any other prophet it's not that the others don't matter it's just that isaiah has so much content as it pertains to the messiah but when we think about uh when we think about isaiah's 42 um, it says this: Hear you deaf and look you blind, that you may see. So now we're talking about what the deaf and the blind. It says, "Who is blind but my servant, or as deaf as my messenger whom I send?" Um, it goes on and unpacks that, but it goes. But then it, we drop down to Isaiah 42, 22, and it says, "But this is a people plundered and looted." Hmm. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. This is almost a perfect word picture, a metaphor of what it is to be in demonic bondage. It's like you're below ground and you can't get out of the hole. It's like you are trapped and hidden away in a prison and you have no ability to let yourself out of prison. You may be living in darkness or not, kind of depends. I think most prisons probably were fairly gloomy. I think modern prisons might be better lit, but, but I think in ancient times I've been in, you know, ancient prisons when I visited the Holy land or been in Jordan or wherever, and it's pretty grim. Right. And it says they have become plunder with none to rescue and spoil with none to say restore. And so Jesus, I think is, is evoking this by citing Isaiah sixty-one, which gets quoted in Luke four, and he's talking about this ministry of restoring people who have been bound, trapped, enslaved, etc. That's what's going on here. And the thing that's interesting about this is all of this speaks of personal freedom, mm-hmm. and it, it really it, it's a very personal matter. I mean, it's it's almost ad hominem. You know, Grant Pemberton, you don't need to live in that bondage that you've been living in. Ken Fish, you don't need to live in that bondage you've been living in. And I think for too long, the gospel we've been pro- we've been preaching and proclaiming, it, it's very ethically driven, which isn't bad. I mean, there is ethics to Christianity, to be sure. And Paul is quite clear, you know, because you've been born again, here is how you ought to live. So there is that ethical imperative in christianity and it would be a, it would be a big mistake to try to remove that um but but a lot of times with the, the gospel we preach as one friend of mine likes to say results in us auditing and shooting all over people right. and so you know we, we tell people what they ought to do and what they should do but you know if people are in bondage if they're if they're entrapped, if they're enslaved to their passions and lusts if they if they can't even make a choice for the good because their mind is all screwed up because they don't even understand the right ways of the Lord. And so it isn't even obvious to them what's right and what's wrong. Those people need to be freed from that. Mm. And what Jesus is implying in all of this is that there is a very personal, as I said, ad hominem uh, power to set people free. And as we saw by, by kind of breaking down Luke chapter four, this is this is on the emotional and mental level. Those aren't the same, but they're two parts of the human soul. It's on the physical level. It's on the the realm of demonic bondage. Jesus comes as a liberator. The, we could say call him the conquering king, but in this case, he's not conquering empires. He's conquering the things that overwhelm and 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 capture people and hold them bound to a life that they don't really want to be in. Hmm. And I think it's such
0: you know thinking about last conversation when we were talking about holiness and you know the the standards and all of that and and if you if you pray with enough people if you sit with enough people you can you can start to learn the difference between people that need to stop doing stuff you know that, that need to be called to a higher standard and the people that are in bondage to things that they can't stop that's and right so i think those two things together really really help us understand a picture of what what jesus does one he calls us up higher and two he frees us to live uh in that in that different place uh through through delivering us uh from evil spirits and so i think this is
1: they, they really go hand to hand that's exactly right so yeah i love that that's great and, and you could even flip it around too you could say um he calls you said he calls us higher and then he frees us we could also say he frees us and then he calls us to live according to that. So this right. is what Paul says it is for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand fast and don't submit again to a yoke of bondage. Right. And so the the it's a summons to live higher and then he gives the wherewithal to live higher and it's also he sets us free and then he summons us to live higher. Both yeah. are, both are true. Right. That's great. And so, you know, with this we come to a a, a, a the concept of grace. And you know, there's been a lot of preaching about grace. There's a lot of churches that have the word grace in their name—Grace Chapel, Grace This, Grace That. Um, but you know, I, I was reading a textbook uh, for my doctoral program. Yes, I do actually do work on it now and then. Uh, I was reading a textbook, and uh, the the writer was making the point that the word grace it comes from the Latin word gratia which means free. And so, you know, we love to say, particularly in the reformed traditions of Protestantism, grace is free. It is freely given. And that's all true, but there's this other side of grace that is, that is grossly under preached. And that is that grace is the empowerment whereby we fulfill the commands of God. Hmm. God literally gives us the wherewithal to fulfill all that he has called us to do. And so for a lot of people, they don't know that side of grace. They don't know that liberating effect. They don't know that empowerment. Um, they might be able to mouth it because there's plenty of verses in Romans that run in this direction. But Paul is is writing about an experience that people have had. He's not oughting and shooting all over people. Right. So, you know, there, there's there's the there's the word that we perceive cognitively. And there's the word that we live out in reality or experience and the words that i usually use to bracket that idea are noetic and numinous so the noetic is the word noetic comes from the word noose which is greek for mind it's not noose like ah but right. it's noose n-o-u-s it means the mind and so the noetic gospel is very cognitive it's propositional Um, It tells people what they should believe. And a lot of the uh, forms of Christianity we see today tend to be very confessional. Um, You know, if you confess this, you will get it. In fact, uh, there's there's a particular teacher comes out of Tulsa. He has a book called Confession Brings Possession. And so, you know, that's the kind of noetic approach to things. If you think the right way, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So if you want to be healed, you have to think you're healed. you got to believe you're healed, proclaim you're healed, stand on that healing. If you want to see something else happen, X, Y, or Z, you proclaim and decree it. And in the proclamation and the decreeing, you make it happen. I don't actually think that's the way it really works. There's this other side of things. It's the noetic, excuse me, the numinous side of things. And this word numinous... Um, n-u-m-i-n-o-u-s. The numinous side of things, it it really evokes something of the Shekinah glory of God. This is the dynamic, active power of God. Uh, Sometimes when that thing shows up in the room, if we're doing a meeting, it it might literally appear like a cloud. It could be the Shekinah, but it isn't always that. It can be that power that comes on someone uh, that causes them to get healed. When I was in Kansas City, just a few days ago, at the Sunday service, a woman came up. And interestingly, she had come out of a very noetic tradition. She'd come out of a strong faith, word faith church in uh, in the center of America. You could probably guess the city. And uh, had gone to a bi- prominent Bible school there and ultimately had gone into the ministry. But she'd had a, a migraine for 20, 20 years, every day, no no so, break. 20 years of migraine. And she wanted me to pray for her migraine. And I didn't ask her the question because I didn't want to be, well, I didn't want to be chippy really, but uh, it was fairly clear from our, our interaction that you know she'd been proclaiming and decreeing and standing on it and all of that for low these long 20 years. And I said, I just want you to look me in the eye. So she did, and I I put my hands on either side of her head as you've seen me do sometimes when I pray for people. Don't do it all the time, but for stuff like this, I often will. I said, I want you to look me in the eye. And I I started to pray into her eyes. And I spoke to this thing and the numinous power of God came. And her eyes kind of flickered for a moment. Her head kind of snapped back. And I said, how does that feel? She goes, it's almost all gone. There's a little bit left. I said, look at me again. So I, I, again, eye to eye locked locked eye contact with her spoke to that thing prayed for it and then she just collapsed in a heap and i mean she wasn't faking she i mean there was no strength in her body she just and i had two people helping me and she hit the ground like a sack of rocks and she laid there for not long maybe it was a, a moment or two, maybe as much as a minute i'm not sure i didn't time it but it wasn't that long and then she kind of shook herself and opened her eyes and i said how do you feel she goes it's gone i can't believe it and she started crying wow he goes my my head is totally neutral I, I don't i don't feel any you know spike or pain or constriction or any of what i've been feeling and i said well that's the difference between the numinous and the noetic i said what you were taught to believe is just confess and hold on and proclaim and decree right. and, and there is a place for holding on to the promises of god i don't want to completely undercut that concept but what we're talking about here and what we're describing here out of Isaiah 61 and in Luke 4 is that is that numinous power that comes in and it's dynamic and it's active and it, it shifts things around in the moment because the spirit of the Lord is on me unto something, right. namely that people would be set free. And in her case, it was an afflicting spirit that had come in 20 years before. And so, you know, we we dispatched that spirit. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel of personal freedom. There are other dimensions of freedom that matter. But, you know, people, it's a funny thing. In all ages of the world, people are very self-interested. If I have a pain in my body, if I'm mentally ill, if I am caught in some bondage to something and I can't stop my drinking, I can't get over my pot smoking, if I'm stuck in pornography, if I've got a same-sex attraction and I don't know how to get rid of that thing, I've prayed, I've decreed, I've called out, I've claimed the scriptures, I've fasted, nothing's happening, you need the numinous power of God. Hmm. And that's what Jesus is really pointing to here. And so that when we talk about the new reformation, there's a very strong now component. God is here and, and, the, and it's happening today. Not, not in five years and not you know whenever God gets around to it, because we are kingdom bringers. I mean, this is really at the core of what we're talking about. And so what's interesting about all of this is that the gospel we are describing has an intensely personal aspect to really put on display for well anyone who shows up god is on your side and he's come to the rescue yeah so i'm thinking of um i mean some people might be bothered by this illustration but it's one that many people are aware of <clears throat> um, in the iraq war i think it was war one not the second one um, there was a woman i don't remember her last name but her name, first name was jessica and she was driving a truck as part of the US Army in a convoy and the convoy got attacked and she was taken prisoner. And, you know, it was in the news that this Jessica had been, you know, captured. And and as I recall, her truck had been hit by an RPG or something, but anyway, she was injured badly. And, but they, she was taken prisoner uh, by the the Iraqi army uh, as we were in conflict with them. And uh, they didn't know where they were, where she was and of course there was a lot of concern for her well-being because of the injuries but of course a woman captured in wartime that's not a good situation either right. so there was a lot of reasons that they were concerned and then you know there was this news report that came out that a team of navy seals had you know they located where she was however they did that you know military intelligence had done had done their work and a team of navy seals had been sent in to rescue her and they had footage of them you know carrying her out of the house. She was still injured, of course, but a rescue operation had been mounted. And on a much bigger scale, I would say D-Day in the Second World War, June 6, 1944, when the Allies invaded Normandy, five landing beaches um, led by General Eisenhower. And, you know, Eisenhower issues his order of battle for the day. And he starts out by saying, men and women of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have labored these many months. And and he says, you know, your enemy is is strong and he is battle hardened. uh, But, you know, you will go and disable and dismantle the Nazi war machine, is what he says in his order of battle. This is what you are going to do. Not you're going to try to do it. You are going to do it. And then he ends up by saying, the free peoples of Europe are counting on you and the hopes and prayers of free people everywhere are with you, Godspeed. So all of this is word pictures, that describe what it is for personal freedom to come to those who are enslaved and bound in any of the dimensions we've talked about. Mental problems, emotional problems. It could be something as relatively simple, relatively, as anxiety. It could be something far more serious than that. It could be paranoid schizophrenia. It could be physical maladies, blind, deaf, and cripple, or cancer, or whatever it could be something that involves demonic bondage but whatever it is the navy seals are coming the us army is coming except this isn't the us army and it's not the navy seals it's the armies of heaven led by the captain of the host jesus is coming to wage a war on the dominion of satan over all of the affliction of mankind and to them from all that the enemy has put on them that is what we are talking about with personal freedom And when people kind of grasp that, and they understand that we're not kidding when we say it, they come from everywhere. Because everybody knows somebody who's sick, it might be them. Everybody knows somebody who has a mental or emotional problem, it might be them, but it could be their family member or friend. But everybody knows somebody, because the world, as John says in 1 John 5, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And this gospel of the kingdom is about, this is ending today. God is going to do something about this. And I think for a lot of people, you know, we call our podcast, God is not a theory. I have a Facebook group that um, you can't just search for it. But if you write to my office, we can put you into the Facebook group. Um, It's called God is not a theory. And it's really become my tagline because I've often said that for many Christians, God is a theory and an unproven one at that. Which is a you know fancier way of saying that for a lot of people, they've been taught to believe in God and they really hope that what they've been taught is right, but they can't point to a single thing in their life experience where they can say, I know that I know that God heard that prayer or that God is real, and that everything that that we've been preaching and proclaiming and saying is actually it's actually working. It's a thing. And so when we talk about the gospel of personal freedom, we are we are very much talking about people having their own personal encounters with God that lead them into that experience. By the way, there's there's other dimensions of this that we might add. Um, one of the more common ones is people getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. So on Pentecost Sunday this year, I was preaching at a friend's church in Maryland. And um, and I preached. Uh, he wanted, wanted me to talk about the kingdom and Pentecost. And I, I had to think about it for a bit. I wrote a, a new sermon for that service because I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about kingdom and Pentecost, but, but for sure it's there in the Bible. That's not in doubt. Right. So anyway, I wrote this message. And then at the end, I said, now, this is a little bit risky. Uh, but, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this, I believe because we've been talking about these things, I believe the Lord wants to baptize people in the Holy spirit. Mm-hmm. And you may have been seeking the baptism for years. You may have just heard of it when I said it now. Uh, but, whatever you want to do uh you know if you want the holy spirit the, the baptism in the holy spirit with speaking in tongues i want you to come up to the front now now because of covid and some of the restrictions and so forth we did not have a large service that morning i don't, I didn't count the people but if it were all of 60 i wouldn't be surprised uh and if it did if it was as low as 40 that wouldn't surprise me either so it was you know i'm trying to give people a sense of what was this? This was not a gigantic group, but nine people came forward out of that crowd, whatever they were, wanting to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And you know, bless God, nine out of nine got filled with the Holy Spirit and spoken tongues. No more waiting. That's awesome. That's a critical part of our message that God's here today. He's here now. And you know, one of the things I want to, I want to say about this as we, uh, as we talk about it, is you know when you when you when you look at these this Isaiah sixty one, when you look at the way Jesus elaborated on it in Luke chapter four. You know after he reads that, all the eyes are looking on him and they're kind of stunned, right? They're, what do you? Who is this guy? I mean, who says this? That's really what's going through their heads. All their eyes are fixed on him, and of course, he sat down again in the synagogue. So they're like staring at him going, what in the world? I mean, who has the chutzpah to say this? Right. And he says, this scripture is fulfilled today in your hearing. It's not a hundred or a thousand years in the future. It's right now. The kingdom is at hand. And so they're astounded, not only that the gracious words that are falling from his lips, but they say to him, isn't this Joseph's son? Remember, he's in Nazareth. Right. Like we know this guy. He grew up here. I mean, he moved away. He's up the road a piece now in Capernaum, but but who is this guy? Anyway, why, why how does he even talk like this? Where did he get these words? And so, he says, "Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum do here in your hometown as well." So they know he's moved to Capernaum and they've heard about the miracles in Capernaum, and there's a couple of other towns where he also ministered heavily. So they're they're thinking about all of that. He says, but I tell you the truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And when they heard these things, now they were filled with wrath. They rose up to drive him out, so he's saying, yeah, I could have done these things in Nazareth, but I didn't. The reason I didn't do them in Nazareth is because of the unbelief that's here. Hmm. And it even goes on when it, in Mark's version of this story, Mark chapter six verse five says he could do there no mighty miracles because of their unbelief, except he saved, he he healed a few sick people. Right. So for a lot of us, we're trapped in this mindset, this mentality that that actually downgrades the gospel it eviscerates the power of the kingdom of god and and all i can say to that is a lot of people say well god's infinitely powerful he can do what he wants i agree with that statement but the fact is he usually doesn't do whatever he wants because there is this weird thing between human beings and god he made us to rule over the earth it says the earth he has given into the hands of the sons of men and I guess we should say that the daughters of women too. But but the bottom line is, you know, humanity has great sway over the earth. And so, um, as we as we look at that, we see that there was something of their of their unbelief, which unbelief arises from many vectors. Many vectors. Sometimes it's waiting a long time and nothing happens. Sometimes it's bad theology. I had a long talk on the way in from the airport today with the pastor who's hosting me here about that exact issue, how so much of the theology that we're we're putting out in the current period, it's actually not on point to what the Bible says. And then we wonder why we don't see the things in the Bible. And I always say, God has bound himself by oath to back his own word. But if we preach a different gospel that is not his word, he's under no obligation to back that. And so for a lot of people, you know they 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 don't realize that the gospel they are they're hearing is somehow a different gospel and with that these things that we speak of the blind the deaf the cripples the you know the the migraines these things may not be part of our part of our experience set because in fact we have sown an environment that is that has hindered all of that from happening Now, as we look at the ministry of Jesus and we look at the ministry of Paul, and you know, it's interesting, the the older I get and the more I read the Bible, the more congruence I see between Paul and Jesus' preaching. They worded it a little bit differently because Paul was generally in the Gentile world, far beyond the borders of Israel, and Jesus was generally among Jews. But there's an amazing congruence between the things that the two of them say. And I would even say there's an amazing congruence in the ministry models that the both of them employ. Hmm. And so I, I want to take this moment to just pause, because as we look at what Jesus was saying, and we look at what Paul did in his ministry, it's curious to me that neither of them advocated the overthrow of Rome. Yeah, Neither of them incited insurrection. They did proclaim the kingship of Jesus, and that got them both into trouble. Right. But but um, neither one was saying that we need to get rid of all of the oppressive structures. Uh, we need to, um, you know, assassinate the emperor. There was no conversation like that at all coming out of the ministry of Jesus or of Paul. And so when we when we look at this, we we can go further. The gospel, as it was proclaimed, was initially targeted at the Jews, but Jesus knew exactly that this would ultimately go to the Gentiles. And in fact, he himself commissioned the gospel to go to the Gentiles in the Great Commission, because you will be witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, that's all Jewish. Then in Samaria, that's sort of Jewish, but not totally. It's kind of half-breed, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus clearly had in mind that this would be a universal gospel for all races, for all nations. And so with this, we can say quite clearly that the gospel is non-racial. I think a lot of people have tried to turn the gospel into the white man's gospel, but it's actually not the white man's gospel. It's the Jewish gospel. And most of these Jews would have been probably light brown in skin tone. They certainly weren't Caucasian. Um, And with that, we can remember what Paul said in in galatians he says there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is neither male nor female all of us have been made one in christ and you know we live in a time of extreme racial tension i think everyone knows that doesn't really need any elaboration but i think if we can return to an authentic proclamation of the gospel it's not that it's not that we don't notice that somebody has a different color skin than we do it's merely that we we treat them as they are fully our brother and sister in Christ, irrespective of their skin color, because they are our brother in Christ. We see the Imago Dei in them. Every human being, no matter what color they are, black, brown, yellow, red, white, or Smurf, not really, but that's just for humor. Um, you know, no matter what color we are, all of us can come under this salvation where the kingdom breaks in upon us and we enter into a new reality of life. And note that this does not require that we overthrow the government or that we completely change everything. Now, yes, of course, if if we are people of influence and work as administrators or civil servants or things like this, um, we might find ourselves in a place where we can rule righteously and justly. And I believe God would have us to do that. I always say righteous people live righteously so you know if you are if you see your neighbor in need whoever that neighbor is it might literally be your next door neighbor it could be somebody in your church It could be somebody you know in the office this is not about skin color this is about they have a need so meet it because this is the personalized gospel the kingdom is breaking in and i i myself might be that agent of the kingdom and so whether it's your supernatural healing or giving somebody uh, a much more practical uh, need that gets filled, we are living as citizens of the kingdom. And in that sense, we want to be colorblind. I know for some people that term is offensive. And so I acknowledge that. But what I'm really saying is we don't give to this race, but not to that race. We, we give to everybody because all are in the image of God. Right. And so um, the kingdom, Jesus said, comes like leaven that works Its way through the whole lump of dough. As we live these expressions of the kingdom, as we expand on them, as we as we become consistent in our own lifestyle of the kingdom, this is really what causes that message of the kingdom to propagate even among people who would otherwise be quite hostile to it. And so with that, I'm reminded of this verse that comes out of James 1:20: the wrath of man or the anger of, of humans. Uh, does not bring about the righteousness of God. There's so much of what people are trying to do with the gospel where they're trying to create some big political structure or they want the church to become a political agent. I don't think that's the role of the church. I mean, we can educate people to be sensitive to these things and to engage at whatever level of society they find themselves, but but ultimately the idea of the church as a as a political construct with the purpose of, of righting every wrong, I think I can safely say the government does government better than the church. Yeah. Just like the military does war better than the church as well yeah. it should, right? So, um, so we need to understand that we are not hereby uh, trying to politicize this or turn it into some sort of social revolution, even though it can be quite revolutionary. We are literally creating a Christian counterculture that is founded on compassion and care. And I just a moment ago cited the book of James and another place in the book of James. He says, you know, what good is your gospel if you see someone in need and you say to them, be warmed and filled, but you don't actually give them practical care. Right. And so with all this, this gospel of personal freedom is also a mandate upon us as kingdom citizens to be on the lookout all around us for those who may actually require some care and assistance. And instead of looking for some institutional program, whether it's through, I don't know, social security, health and human services, health education and welfare, or the local church, maybe we ourselves are supposed to engage with them. Where do we see that lived out? Well, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right. We all know the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's beset by robbers. He's left for dead by the side of the road. And along comes a Samaritan. It's interesting, Jesus picks a Samaritan. This is a half-breed. He might have been a mulatto, right? Half brown, half white, half black, half white. Or he could have been some other kind of a mix. He could have been, you know, Japanese and black or something. I don't know. But but the point is, he's he's a Samaritan. The Samaritans were interbred with the Assyrian conquerors. 700 years before the time of Jesus they didn't really worship Yahweh authentically they kind of had a notion of him but they had other gods they worshiped and their their worship was on this other mountain Mount Gerizim and and so they didn't go down to Jerusalem and that was all political too because if everyone goes to Jerusalem to worship they might be drawn back to the kingdom of Judah rather than the kingdom of Israel so you got all this intrigue and other stuff old history stuff that's never going to get righted that it's all there and the Samaritan sees the man lying by the side of the road. Now we don't know what that man's race was. We don't even know what the Samaritan's race was, but if he is interbred uh, Assyrian and, uh, and Jew, yeah, he's probably some kind of milk chocolate brown of some sort, maybe lighter, maybe darker, but we don't know who the guy is that's injured. But what we know is that guy is probably not a Samaritan because this happened between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so, Before the Samaritan comes along though, it says a priest came along and he gathered his robes about him and went on about his way. He was a very religious man, he was a priest. So all he did was religion, that was his his whole life. We don't know what his level of personal piety and depth was, but but by outward appearance, he was was a man of God, as we would say. Right. Right behind him comes a Levite. Now the Levites aren't as far up the pecking order as the priests because the priests carry out the sacrifices and conduct the temple rituals and all that. And that's really like, that's the stuff, right? The Levites are really tasked with maintaining the temple. They sweep it, uh, they resupply the oil, they uh, prepare the sacrifices that the priests will offer. They bring the wood for the fire that will burn the sacrifice so they're they're kind of like a b-class citizen but they do have a religious function and there's a special blessing on the levites in the mind of every good jew this goes right back into the pentateuch into the torah all right but this levite he doesn't stop either so these two guys that are all about the, the business of god they don't do anything for that guy lying by the side of the road and now comes the samaritan and he picks him up and puts him on his own donkey that means the samaritan had to dismount and, you know, he carries him to this inn. We don't know how far it was, but it's a small hotel. And uh, I'm pretty sure they didn't have American Express cards in those days. But, but he had what we would, it's an, it's an older term, but we would call it an open account. He was well enough known to the innkeeper. Maybe he stayed there when he came down from Samaria. To conduct his business, he stayed there regularly, so the innkeeper knew him. And interestingly, this this Samaritan was uh, apparently some kind of a respectable individual, because he says, "Look, here's some money. Take care of this man that's been injured. Um, and if if there if it takes more, I'll pay it when I come back." And the innkeeper is amenable to this. He's amenable to it because because this Samaritan has never defaulted on his word. He's never he's never backed up on anything. He said, "Yeah, sure, no problem." And so presumably, if there was a higher tab in the end, uh, the Samaritan paid that bill on his next time through. We, we don't know where it goes from there because the story ends. And, and so we are only left to speculate on what the future outcome of that whole thing was. But, you know, when Jesus tells the parable, he says, now, which of you, which of you do you suppose did the will of God? And they say, well, of course it was. It was the man who helped him. And Jesus says, go thou and do, like, do likewise, become a Samaritan. And so the whole thrust of that parable is that righteous people must be individually engaged in their own sphere of influence. Now, if you are some sort of a you know high level executive or a government bureaucrat or something, and you have the ability to bring about just rulings, assuming that there is a need for improvement, And of course there may well be, because fallen people produce fallen systems. Well then bring about the righteousness of God there. If you don't have that big of a purview, then do it in the domain where you are. If you're just a housewife, make sure your house is righteous, that all your kids get treated well, and there's no favoritism among your children. There's a shocking amount of just that that goes on in Christian homes. And what does that breed? Ambition, insecurity, competition, fights, And people say, well, why does that family not get along? Well, sometimes the parents have failed to administrate the kingdom at their own little local level, that little oikos level of their own household. So the kingdom can be small, the kingdom can be big, but if we will faithfully administer it and carry it out, it will spread like leaven in a lump of dough. It will literally make the bread rise. (laughs) And I, you know, I love that in that parable, you know, the parable's
0: response to a lawyer saying you know, what's the greatest commandments? And he, and, and Jesus is answering, you know, love the Lord, your God with all your heart. I love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, well, now who's my neighbor because he's wanting to make sure that he's dotting all the I's. And so then he goes in and tells, tells the story of the good Samaritan and, and, you know, he's saying your neighbor is actually the person that you think is doing your religion wrong. He's doing it the wrong way. He's got it wrong. And I think, you know, for so many, you and I both see right and left, you know, at both sides think that they're doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and really what he's calling us into is to love,
1: love those people. And I might say love practically because these right. days love is ill-defined and it often, often means something like, you know, have good sentiments toward and never say anything that could crowd their safe space. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And this, is, this is way more than that. We have to understand biblical love and what that means, what That's that right. word means for sure. That's right. So, you know, we started in Isaiah 61, and we've kind of gotten further afield, but I want to bring it back to this. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Well, I'm going to change the language now. The Spirit of the Lord is upon us, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon us because he has anointed us to preach. He's anointed us to preach good news to the poor, and he's anointed us to reach recovery of sight to the blind. He's anointed us to to set at liberty to the oppressed. He's anointed us for all of that and with it to declare the year of God's favor, the year of God's turnaround, the year of God's invasion on their behalf. Not that God is um, coming to like make everything bad and hard, but rather that you would understand who this God is, that you don't even know who he is. And with that, that you would become so completely inca- you know, captured in the wonder and majesty of this God that you would come back to him. And so we have this as well. This is actually not Isaiah 61, but it's Isaiah 60, which of course precedes 61. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This is the hour. Get up, become who you were meant to be. Shine, let the light of God shine out of you because look darkness will cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples but the lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising and then it goes on and it talks about how uh it's actually a different part of isaiah but a people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light and upon those who've lived in the land of the valley of the shadow of death, in all their bondage, in all their sickness, in all their captivity, in all of their crazy in the mind, crazy in the emotions, in all of that, those people have seen a great light and upon those who lived in the land of the valley of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shown. And so part of this Isaiah 61 message is the light of God has come near to you and is shining upon you. Will you accept it? Will you embrace it? There's still a choice in it, and there's still a summons that Jesus issues. But this is where God wants us to be. That's great.
0: That's great. Well, that's a good place to end uh, this time, I think. And 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 basically to summarize it, you know, this this sixth element is is again, it, it's it's tied into everything else, but it's it's God actually doing what he set out to do uh, through us and i think i think the church i think the people uh, in our society they need to see that god is still on the throne and and that he's still at work and he's still moving and and i haven't ever seen anyone really turn that down once they're once they're exposed to it i haven't seen that backfire uh when god begins to move you know and i think I think that's the cry. That's that's the prayers. You know, let's let's see that again. Let's let's begin to interact with that again and preach a gospel that that is more than just morals and ethics. Yeah. The gospel of freedom. I love it. Amen. That's awesome. Well, Ken, thanks so much uh, for this. I look forward to uh, uh, to doing this again and, and to, to going over uh, uh, the last final part, part seven. Yeah. Uh, of this new reformation. I, I'm excited to get to that. So thanks for joining us. And uh, thank you guys for listening. We look forward to uh, to being with you and, and uh, for this next, uh, next episode. We'll see you soon. God is not a theory is a podcast of Orbis Ministries. For more information about Orbis Ministries, go to orbisministries.org. If you have questions you'd like to have Ken answer on the podcast, please send us an email to podcast at orbisministries.org. Thanks for listening.